chapter 8, Genesis 8, while you make your way there, I'm pleased to announce that we have wonderful visitors, there are many visitors here, but I, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, we have two who've come from perhaps the longest distance, and that is from France, and they sit right there, could you raise your hands? Wonderful. Welcome to you both. We're glad you're here. Is anyone here from a greater distance than France? <laughs> Pearland, maybe? <laughs> from where? France Lane. You are disqualified. Thank you. Well, we are just pleased to have you with us. God bless you. We're in Genesis chapter 8, and we'll just get right into it. Look how it begins. But God remembered Noah. Does that imply that God had forgotten him and then caught up with his circumstances and remembered? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? Sort of meanwhile, back to Noah, I, I got you. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Yes, ma'am. Our sister was shared, even though the whole world was being destroyed, God remembered, had his focus on Noah and his plan was to deliver him. That's accurate? Absolutely. Yes, Mac. It's pretty much just as we would think it is. I studied it and thought, well, that will give us the simplest explanation. But it, uh, it pretty much means just what we think it would, <laughs> it would mean. So what we have to do to make sense of it is look to its occurrence in other places in the Old Testament. And I can tell you this, when it occurs elsewhere, it is always used in this sense. God had made a promise to a person or a people group. And between the making of the promise and its fulfillment... There was a passage of time. When it came finally to the right time for God to fulfill it, then we read the expression, and God remembered. Not implying that he forgot, implying that now he's going to come through and fulfill what he had promised. Mary? This is an excellent point, what Mary said. She said, when it comes time, God brings it back to the front of his mind. And I think that's accurate. Wouldn't it be horrible if God was so limited that he had the capacity to forget us? Many here are going through difficult times. Wouldn't the difficulty be enhanced if you thought God didn't know? What if you had to persuade him to pay attention to you? That would be horrific, but you don't have to. He attends to you 24 hours a day. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. I love his quality of omniscience. It means he's all-knowing. It's not possible for him to forget in the sense that he loses sight 
of what we're going through. It's just not his nature. So God remembered Noah, not only him, all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And last week at the end of the uh, class when we dismissed, Al asked me if I'd give some thought to what does the ark mean? So I did some study, uh, Al, um, because I know how demanding you are. And uh, it, it appears that it was originally probably an Egyptian word and came from Egypt into the Hebrew, the language of Genesis. And it probably means something like a chest or a um, box or even a casket or coffin, not with a reference to death, just a complo- uh, an enclosed compartment. So from e- Egyptian to uh, Hebrew, the word ark, uh, a box, essentially is what it means. And God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Um, there's a big problem, flood waters, I believe of a universal kind, not localized kind. It takes a big God to resolve this big problem. How are you going to deal with all the water? Apparently, it was a snap for God. He just called upon the surfaces of wind. <laughs> and the wind was one of the ingredients he used to cause the waters to recede and the land to dry. And verse 2, also the fountains of the deep. Remember, we referenced this last week and that there were two sources of water for the flood from above, rain from below, subterranean waters explosively erupting, boom, and causing a flood. Well, it's now God who intervenes addressing these fountains of the deep. In addition to the floodgates of the sky, he closed them. And the result was that the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. It's interesting because it looks like it took 150 days for the water to increase. You have to do some chronology here. If you go back to Genesis 7, we find out that the heavy rains were 40 days in duration. But it appears that rains continued as did water from a subterranean source for about 110 days. So 110 and 40 gives you 150 days to make the flood, and it looks like the exact number of days to cause it to go away, 150 days. And God told Noah something. Prior to the flood, he told him it was coming and get ready, and Noah did. You would think a good God would warn those who believed in him, of impending judgment. God did. So Noah knew exactly when to get in the ark. It wasn't a speculative venture for him. God said, get in the ark. It was pretty clear. But one thing just as clear is that God did not specifically tell him when to get out of the ark. I was looking to this and it occurred to me for the first time. Perplexed me a little bit. God told him when the devastation is coming, but he didn't tell him when it all would end. And then it occurred to me, that's typically the way God operates with all of us. He's given us ample warning about judgment to come. We have found our safety in the ark. His name is Jesus. But he hasn't specified when all things that bother us will come to an end. Many of us are in a box, let's face it. 
That's what the ark was. It was a box, not a cruise ship. I don't know how comfortable it was with all those animals. Generally, animals smell, don't they? They make noises all hours of the day and night. Have fun trying to sleep. It's dark in there. There's a window, but you can't open it. Water will get in. Probably was on the top of there, not on the side. You didn't have an ocean view. He's in it for a long time. Over a year. I'll show you in just a little bit. You would have a tendency to want to hear from God. But we don't have a record of God speaking to Noah while he was in the ark. I didn't say he didn't. I'm just telling you it's not recorded. God told him when to get in and that's it. What would you do in a box like that? Well, I know what you would do. You start kicking at the door. I want out. I want out. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You believe in the existence of God. You know he's good. But sometimes there's a sense in which you don't feel like you're really hearing from him. What's up, God? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles is bringing up a wonderful point. The reality of it all, that he said the smell of the pitch and what did they do for ventilation and light and all the rest, those are the realities. But then he said, I repeat this because I'm not sure you heard, he said, but God is God. And that's what we look to, and you're so right. So so uh, let me just go on here a, a, a little bit, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to you. <clears throat> I, wanted, I wanted you to be clear about a point. Um, there's a question that's common to humankind <clears throat> You've asked it, and so have I. There's actually two. Uh, the first one is why, and the second is how long. Everyone asks it, Christians, non-Christians, everybody. How long? Because <clears throat> something in us has persuaded us this. I'm in a box, and I don't like it. I want to get out of the box. It's something imposed upon me by life's cruel turn of events. <clears throat> I want to be free of it. I want to be on dry land. I want to breathe the air. I want to be in the light. I don't want to be in the box. So we cry out, how long? Why? Because we think if God would only deliver the goods and answer that question, I would be better able to endure the discomfort of life. So we say, God, is it two weeks? Is it two months? Is it two years? God, be honest. If you tell me even it's 10 years, I don't like that, but I can handle it. I can endure whatever it is that is painfully uh, affecting me now. As long as you put a time limit on it, then I can prepare accordingly. But God almost never answers that question. You know what I mean? I ask it if you want to, but he almost never asks it. Because the answer to the how long question is this. We don't like it, but it's true. In God's time, that's how long. Not one moment too soon, not one moment too late. Now, why doesn't he specify how long it is the trial or trouble we are experiencing has to go on? I'll tell you why. There's no opportunity to exercise faith in him if we know all things. 
oh, a good and merciful God warns us about flood and how to be ready, and here's the ark and get in it and be safe. We would expect that of him, but we have to expect this also. He really is in the business of loving us with a perfecting love, not a pampering love. Now, we stumble over this because somehow we bought the bill of goods. When we accepted Jesus, everything will go our way. No, when we accept Jesus, our sin issue is dealt with entirely. Uh, But accepting Jesus does not come with a guarantee of smooth sailing. We're going to be in a box a lot of times in life. God's love is not pampering. It's perfecting. Why? Because he's eternal and really gets eternity. And you and I don't. How can we? We're time-bound. Folks, today is Sunday. Tomorrow is Monday. Thereafter, we'll have Tuesday. Can you see everything? It is now 11-whatever-it-is, and we'll be done at 2-whatever-it-may-be <laughs> at this rate. But God uses time. He's not subject to it. He is an eternal being. And therefore, in light of eternity, he's actually willing to allow us to serve some time in the box for the sake of eternal gain. What do you mean eternal gain? Do you know everything, just about everything we value here has a shelf life? Do you value your marriage? It has a temporal shelf life. Do you value your home? It has a shelf life. These things are not going with us in eternity. How about your stock portfolio? How about your health? It has a shelf life. You're getting a new body, one fit for eternity. I'm not minimizing the importance of those things. Please don't misunderstand. But don't make them more important than they are. From God's point of view, they don't loom as large as eternal gain. And what we really bring with us in eternity is the extent to which we have been clinging to God here. We get used to trusting him here, and we live with him in light of our connection throughout eternity Folks, this is a loving God, but he's willing to allow us to suffer various loss and even feel lonely, abandoned, and confused by him at times. So as to see him come through, I guarantee when Noah got out of the ark, he took no credit for it all. He was grateful to God for his salvation, and he probably uttered something like, Oh, God, I should have trusted you more. I fear most of us will say that upon seeing Jesus. Lord Jesus, I should have trusted you more. I trust him for the forgiveness of my sins, as have many of you. To be honest with you, that's not that difficult. But do I trust him for the day? I trust him for eternal life, but do I trust him for daily life? You see, that's the deal. Well, I don't. And so I'm in the box, and so are you. And I'm doing everything I could to kick my way out of it. So if I'm lonely, I may get married. I I may get married in advance of God's will. If I'm not happily married, I may get out of it outside of God's will. I may move outside of God's will. I may stay in a place outside of God. I may fend for myself. I'm kicking, I'm kicking. I want out of the ark. I want out of the box. And one day I'll find out, so will you, why God kept us in that box just as he did. If we're honest, and we went around the room, many here would admit that that which you are presently we that which we are presently struggling with is due to our own poor decision making we jumped the gun and we tried to meet our own valid needs outside of the will of god he loves us but there's still a consequence when we do that sometimes we're hasty 
because we don't know the discipline of waiting on God. Why does he subject us to it? So that when we get out of the ark, we say, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. It has to be that way. He wants us to sing his praises to a watching world, and he wants to give us evidence of the fact that he's praiseworthy. So he delivers us from the throes of life his way in his time. And if we do it our way, he gets no glory, and we get lots of trouble. Noah, say whatever you want to about him. Noah waited upon the Lord. Well, you might say we had no choice. That's true. If God gave us a choice to get out of the box prematurely, we probably would, and then miss out on what being in the box is meant to produce in our lives. So God locks us in. Sometimes our realities are so harsh, we find no way out of it. We don't see any hope. That's the point. That's the atmosphere in which God really works. That's when the God of hope delivers us from the floodwaters of life, enables us to rise above, and then we sing his praises. Folks, I don't like all that. I want it to be smooth sailing, but that's not the way it is in the Christian life. It's not the way it is. His is a perfecting love, not a pampering love. So Noah's in the box, and he doesn't know when it's going to end. He has no idea. But we do. We're reading the text. Verse 4, in the seventh month. Hey, by the way, Albert, I have what you asked me for. Before, Excuse me. But before we take off, I'll give it to you. It's, in the seventh month. On the 17th day of the month, look how precise. This is not a myth, is it? This is historical narrative. Uh, The ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Does your Bible say mountains of Ararat or mountain? Mountains, Mountains, plural. Good, way to go. It should be plural. (laughs) So what does this mean? Um, We're really talking about a mountain range, not a specific mountain. Ararat... Uh, was actually ancient Ur-Artu, Ur-Artu. It's Assyrian. It was part of the Assyrian world. And um, Ur-Artu encompassed uh, parts of Iran um, uh, and eastern Turkey in particular, and Armenia, modern-day Armenia. It's a big, big, expansive area. Why do I say this? I know people think they have located Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. There is such a named place, Mount Ararat. It's a mountain in the Ararat mountain range that's higher than all others in the range. It's about 17,000 feet. Could it be the locale of Noah's Ark? Sure. I don't know this. I just don't think anyone does. I'd be really careful about too much focus on the sensational. And just stick with the text here. Somewhere in the region of Ararat, Noah's box (laughs) came to a resting place. By the way, the word rest and the word Noah in Hebrew are from the same root word. (laughs) Interesting kind of play uh, on the words. Why doesn't God just show us where the ark is, Noah's ark? Tell me why. We would worship it. That's why. Sadly, we can't be trusted with these artifacts. We'd bow down to it. We'd make pilgrimages. We'd fight over it. We'd kiss it. It's a thing. Hence, we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine if we had the Ark of the Covenant? I know they found it in that movie. What was that movie years ago? But we can't, we can't dare. I mean, countries would go to war over it. You know, Christians would think it has mystical and magical whatever. We have access to the Lord Jesus. I don't know. Okay. 
So anyway, Mount Ararat. Now verse 5, the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Good night, the patience of Noah. He, look, the, the ark finally comes to rest on a place. The mountains become visible. He waits another 40 days. Oh, my goodness. Interesting. Then he sends out a raven, verse 7. It flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Later, we'll find out he sent out a dove. Anyone know the difference between a raven and a dove? They're birds, but the different characteristics. Anyone know anything about them? Yes, sir. Yes. A raven, our brother said, is a flesh-eating bird. A dove is a vegetarian. This is true. So if a raven is a flesh-eating bird, it could find food even on the surface of the waters. The other thing about a raven is it's stronger than a, it's a stronger flyer than a dove. It could just fly great distances and long periods of time. This is not true of a dove. Doves like to alight on lower level things. Ravens can land anywhere. So this was a good animal, a good bird to send out to begin with. Now, some people read a lot of stuff into this. I'm not one of them, but if you are, it's a free country. Uh, some say the raven is a symbol of Satan, and uh, Noah had to get rid of it because the raven is an unclean bird, not fit for sacrifice or eating. So let's get rid of Satan, and the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Let's welcome the Holy Spirit. So though these concepts may be true, I don't see that flowing from the text. That would be called reading something back into the text when our goal is to lift meaning out of the text. So I sort of be careful about all that kind of stuff. I think the meaning here is that it's a raven. Why? Because Noah has to do some reconnaissance, and he can't get out of the box. And you can't open the window widely yet. Listen, if this thing rested on a mountain, in a mountain range, what is he seeing, even if he looks out? Not much. It's not on a plane where you can see forever, for miles. He, his visibility is limited, for crying out loud. He doesn't know what's going on, so he's got to, he needs some help. So he simply sent out this raven to see what was going on. Now, here's what happened, verse 8. Then he sent out a dove. Now, he sends out doves, a dove three times. Here's the first. He sends out a dove to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place. You see, the, the, the dove has higher standards. The raven can rest pretty much anywhere, but not the dove. Uh, the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark uh, to himself. You know, I was just thinking. Do you think Noah, do you think in all this time he had in the ark, did he train the bird to come back? Or did God make it happen? Yeah, I kind of think God made it. But I was just thinking, what did he do? He's like no TV, no cable, no nothing. You know, he's in this box for a long time. But I, I think God took care of it. Anyway, verse 10. So he waited yet another seven days. Once again, unbelievable patience. What would you do? You finally landed. You want to get out of this thing, don't you? No, nah, not so quick. He waits another seven days, and again, second time, he sends out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, came back. Behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. 
So no one knew that the water was abated from the earth. How did he know that? But olive trees don't grow real high. Kind of short. Stumpy. You can go to Israel today and you see olive trees. They just don't grow. They're not big old tall things. So that told him the waters had gone down quite a bit. Verse 12. Then he waited yet another. Boy, I want to follow Noah when it comes to the discipline of waiting on God. He waited another seven days. He sent out the dove third time, but she did not return to him again. Now, it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month. You talk about Happy New Year. The water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So a little bit of a chronology. Uh, chapter 7 told us there were 40 days of rainfall. Then we add to it another 110 days in which the waters continued to prevail. That's chapter 7, verse 24. Then another 74 days before the tops of the mountains were seen after the waters began to subside. That's what we read in chapter 8, verse 5. Forty days later, it was that Noah finally sent out the raven. Then he waited another seven days before the dove was released the first time. Then another seven days before the dove was sent out a second time. Then an additional seven days before the dove was sent out a third time. If you add all that up, that's 285 days since the beginning of the flood and he and the seven entering into this box. Now then you have to add to it another 29 days. Uh, before the events recorded here in verse 13. Then you have to add to that another 57 days uh, before the removal of the covering of the ark uh, based on the date given to us in verse 14. If you add all that up, that makes a grand total of 371 days or over a year. That's a long time to be in a box. That's just a long time. Then God spoke to Noah. Noah said about time, but it was God's time. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you, your wife, sons, sons' wives with you. He went in by the command of God. He got out by the command of God. He waited on God. Verse 17, bring out with you uh, every living thing of all the flesh with you, birds, animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth, be fruitful and multiply. Oh, what a blessed repetition, be fruitful and multiply. There's been such destruction. My goodness, the same God responsible for Noah's deliverance is responsible for the destruction of the world. That's a little uncomfortable, isn't it? But you have to hold those two characteristics of God in tension. He delivers and he judges. It's both. He has a right to do judgment on the world. He judged the sinful world with a devastating flood and he delivered those who believed on his, on his name and in his word and were in the ark. The destroyer is also a, a deliverer. You can err in both ways. Some people say, no, God is so much a merciful deliverer, there is no judgment of sin and there is no hell. That's a very popular notion. Everybody who dies goes to heaven. Universal salvation, it's called. That's an error in the direction of the goodness of God. Then there's an error in the direction of the bigness of God. You say, oh, no, there is no mercy with God. He's evil, big, and powerful. He's just a destroyer. 
No, you have to bring the both together. These are both the attributes of God. He's an iron fist, for sure, in a velvet glove. For crying out loud, he has every right to judge human sin. But by his amazing grace, he let it be judged primarily in his own person, his enfleshed son. He poured out his wrath on him. You have to hold that together, you see. So anyway, uh, it's been a long time. They get out of this thing. (laughs) And verse... uh, 18, Noah went out, his sons, his wife, all of them, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird by their families. And then Noah built an altar, verse 20, built an altar to the Lord. Wow, that took me by surprise. It's not the first time people worshiped God. We read about that with Cain and Abel. But it is the first mention of an altar to God. He made a specific place. He took an opportunity to worship God. This is overwhelming to me. What would you do? You're in a box for over a year. Was this the first thing you would do? Would you do this first? There'd be so many things to do rather than this. For instance, like I got to build a house. What's my family going to live in? How about these animals? I got to corral them in for crying out loud. I got stuff to do. Yeah. But when he got out, this is the first thing he did. You know what somebody said? He begins well who begins with God. In the new world, they got off to a good start. He begins well, who begins with God. He started off with worship, gratitude, and praise. Hey, folks, come on, come on over here, come, if you don't mind. I, I don't want to embarrass you, but here, this seat's right over here. These are expensive. Right over here. Come on over. Good to see you. I know that kid right there. Good to see you. How are you, sir? Welcome to you. Welcome. So... Um, This is what he does. Um, So I try to make a custom every morning of starting the day with God. It's not a bad idea. So I get up. I go to a room in the house, kind of close the door where I can be alone. And the way I start is by just reminding myself who I'm talking to. That's called praising God. What does that mean? I just verbalize who I believe God is. I tell him, I think he likes to hear who I believe he is. I say, God, you are great. You are good. You are the most high God. You know all things. You know the end from the beginning. You use time and space, but you exist outside of time and space. God, you are very, very good. You don't just do good things. You is good by nature. I do some good stuff from time to time, but that doesn't reflect my nature. It reflects yours. What I really, really appreciate about you is how you are able to be aware of all that's going on with all your kids all over the place. I don't know how you do it. That's pretty amazing. You must be God. And I go through that. When I get done praising God, that's what that is, I start asking for stuff. So I move from praise to petition. And so whatever comes to mind, I ask him. It might be family issues. It might be uh, issues concerning you. It might be issues concerning me. I, I, I ask God for stuff. Then when I'm done, I say, God, thanks for letting me talk. I've done all the talking. I'm ready to listen. In fact, I need to listen because I've got some problems. You know what they are. Could you speak to my issues from your word? And then I open the Bible. Randomly? No way. I open it up to the place I left off the day before. I want to show some respect for God's word. You know, I'm not reading it piecemeal. So I, so, so I pick up and I read really, really slowly as if it's written to me, and I look for the application therein. I read for a little bit. Then when I, I finish, I, I thank God for the meeting time. I tell him, what a cool way to start the day. 
Then I do something maybe you'll find weird. I close the Bible and I kiss it. I don't know if it's a Jewish thing or what. It's my background. It's the way we show respect for the word. It just means something to me. I just kiss it. Then I take the thought that God had given me and I feed on it the rest of the day. I just think about it the rest of the day. I do that every single day. David said, in the morning, you will hear my voice. I said, what a cool model. I'm going to do the same thing. But I didn't do it today. You know why I didn't do it today? My wife is not home. She's in Europe. I was just talking to her friends from France. She is where their daughter is. She's in Austria. She's in Vienna, Austria right now. She should call your daughter. They should get together. No. Anyway, she's there. She's part of a homeschooling deal. Teachers, they they take kids on an annual trip. Teachers, parents, kids, and they're off on a European tour. I'm home. But I don't know what to do. So she left me lots of food. So I get up this morning and I'm thinking, oh, no, I have to go into the mysterious room. I believe it's called the kitchen. <laughs> I have to go. I know when she has notes, she told me what to do. I got to, like, read the notes. And what does, what's the difference between bake and broil? And I don't know this stuff. And then there's, like, she showed me. Do you have one of these? This is unbelievable. She showed me we have something called a washer and a dryer. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's like this white thing, you know what I mean? I thought it's just something you put stuff on. I have no idea. It's like dials on it and lights and things. It's just fascinating. No, I don't know how to work it, but it's like a fascinating. So I'm figuring out how to do all this kind of stuff and, you know, I get it together and all the rest, take care of the dogs and, you know, it's like she gives them a treat in the morning. She gives them a treat. I don't know. Well, where are the treats? Oh, are these the treats? It's like a big treat. You give them a half a treat. What do you, how many treats do you, you know, well, they told me the whole thing that my dogs took. So then, so I get in the car, I say, oh, my goodness, church is going to be easy in comparison to that. I, like, had to make breakfast. So the church is going to... Then I realized, oh, God, I haven't said a word to you. I've just been distracted by other stuff. I didn't make first things, first things. To, eh, I'm not nervous about that. I'm not going to lose my salvation. God is so good. He'll be available tomorrow. I'll get off to a good start tomorrow, I think, unless I have to wash the clothes. But I'm just thinking, see, he who begins well... He begins well, who begins with God. So I didn't begin. But Noah, in spite of all the things <clears throat> he might have prioritized instead, made an altar to God. And I think it was a twofold purpose as you read it. I think one was sheer and utter thanksgiving. Wouldn't you be grateful? Doggone it, I've been in a box for over a year with a bunch of animals. They smell, they make noise, haven't gotten much sleep, whatever. And now I'm in the mouth. Oh, wow, is that what air tastes like? I mean, he's just going nuts. He's Oh, God, you wiped out the entirety of humankind but me and my family because we took you at your word. I am grateful. I got to do something to make it concrete. I got to put Shula, I'm building an altar. I'm marking the spot. I'm on dry ground. I didn't know when, if I'm ever going to get out of the box. Now I'm out on dry... Oh, God, this is for you. I'm so grateful. We would burst if we couldn't thank God for the things he's... That's the first reason for this. The second reason, notice what it says. Um, He built an altar. He took of every clean animal and of every clean bird. He offered burnt offerings on the altar. Folks, that had to be the most costly sacrificial offering in the history of humankind. Clean animals. Listen to me. I don't think they reproduced on the ark. 
I don't think animals reproduced on the ark. I'm guessing at this. I'm just trying to think if they did. Like, think about rabbits. <laughs> they make it happen, don't they? There's like no room on the ark if all this was going on. So I think he got out of the ark with a limited supply of clean animals. Remember, those are the ones suitable for sacrifice, but also to eat. Unclean animals, one thing. Clean animals. And remember, there was a distinction in the two groups. This is a valuable commodity. What does he do? He gives God the best of what he had. How did he do it? He knew everything he had was from God. This is a guy who could have been under the water, gasping for air. God provided all this. He makes his offering to God. There's something else about this offering. Something in him told him, long before the law of Moses was codified and regulated animal sacrifice, something in him told him, God provides atonement through the blood. Look, he gets out of the ark. You know what he says? I'm still a sinner. So is my family. The flood didn't change my nature. No, I was saved from the consequences of my nature by being in the ark. God provided a means of escape. It became mine, not by virtue, but by faith in his provision. I'm out of it. Others perished. The difference between them and me is that they weren't in the ark by faith. I can take no credit for it. The floodwaters did not change my human proclivity to sin. Therefore, O God, please accept this burnt offering as atonement for my sin. And here's God's response. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. That sounds weird, huh? But that's kind of an Old Testament reference to the fact that God accepted what was offered. was pleasing. He did not reject what Noah offered. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. You know what God is saying? My decision not to curse the ground again is not due to any perceived virtue in man. In fact, what I perceive is that he's a sinner from his youth. What is motivating me to withhold any further cursing on the earth is not any virtue in Noah and the other peeps with him on the ark. They are as sinful as anybody. What is moving me to make this decision is sheer and utter grace and Noah's offering. So God says, I'm not going to do this. I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done. What does that mean? Well, if you, we'll see this next week. Get into chapter 9, verse 11, you find out that God says, I won't bring judgment on the world by a universal flood again. But that doesn't mean that God won't bring judgment on the world. Oh, he will. This is in anticipation of a cataclysmic judgment on the world to come, yet not by flood waters. And then it says this, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. That is probably an ancient Hebrew poem suitable for memorization. God is saying something. Noah, 
you are unpredictably sinful. You, your children, and all those who come from you. You are unsettled in your sinfulness. It can rear its ugly head at any time. You're not to be counted on. There is no regularity to you. You are irregularly involved in righteous deeds and sinful things. You have your fluctuating ups and downs. You are unstable. But Noah, I promise you a stable environment anyway. You can count on seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. You can count on that. And Noah, it's not because of you. It's because of my grace. Instead of destruction, the earth will be blessed with the regularity of predictable environmental patterns undergirded by my sustaining hand. My wife's a meteorologist. That was her trade. There's no such thing if there weren't predictable atmospheric patterns to study. There surely are exceptions to the rule that tsunami here, a tornado there. But if God lifted his sustaining hand for one minute, there wouldn't be localized exceptions to the rule. Good night, this whole environment in which we live would be obliterated for crying out loud. God made this promise there. Someone said, however irregular the human heart may be, there will be regularity in God's world and its cycles. I'm not afraid of so-called global warming and all the rest because God said, I will provide an environment in which you can be sustained until the time when I don't. See where it says, while the earth remains? That implies to me the impermanence of the environment in which we live. I think there will be a day when God will judge universally the world once again and he has a right to And then he will create for those who believe on him a new environment. We call it the new heavens and the new earth. And I find in this passage, again, absolutely no place for Mother Earth theology in the Bible. Uh, I find that the earth owes its powers not to the abstract concept of Mother Earth, but to the real delineated, declared power of Father God. It's he who made the promise in verse 22. It's he who holds all things together. Now, I want to close with this. Have you heard of a guy named D.L. Moody? Most of you have. Great evangelist, wonderful giant in the faith. Well, a man approached him once. Excuse me. It's because of the... um, the breakfast I ate this morning, I don't think I cooked it right. You know what I'm saying? I do not want you to feel sorry for me. I will make it somehow. My wife is over there in Europe enjoying. Uh, she was in Switzerland yesterday, Switzerland, Lucerne. And they had, uh, what do you call that deal where it's like a big pot and you put a fondue. That's what she had. She had fondue. Yeah. And I had... Uh, uh, she left me some, like, chicken and mashed potatoes, and uh, man, I was hungry, and I didn't know how to heat the thing. I just ate it cold. <laughs> She's eating fondue. What do you say? La fondue. Ooh, la fondue. 
Hey, you don't have to cuss at me. I'm j- oh, that's French. I'm so sorry. So anyway, this guy comes up to D.L. Moody and he says, um, I don't feel saved. What he said? I just don't feel like I'm saved. Moody said to him, uh, was Noah safe in the ark? And the man said, yes, yeah, sure. Certainly he was. And Moody said, well, what made him safe? Was it his feeling or was it the fact that he was in the ark? The man got the point. What makes you safe? It isn't your virtue. It isn't that you have a better nature than anybody else. Or It isn't your feeling. Of, I mean, feelings come and go, you know, like this. It's the fact that you're in the ark, the safe place, that makes you safe. Jesus is the ark. All this is historical narrative, but it shouldn't stay in ancient history. It's a, it's, a, it's a revelation of how God responds to sinful humankind. How does he? With severe judgment and also amazing grace. One or the other, which is it going to be? It's up to the choice of the individual, for he forces no one into the ark. Jesus is the ark. As there was one ark, not manifold arks, there's only one. So too, there's only one Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. And contingent on my acceptance of what he has done for me and you, we find a place of safety. Some days I don't feel so hot, whatever the deal is. Okay, but it's irrelevant. My assurance of deliverance is a function of my placement in the ark. Jesus is the ark. Folks, uh, God shows us something here. We, by nature, are sinful. That is to say, in thought, word, and deed, we act, think, speak contrary to the will of God. We're adversaries, you see what I mean? We're adversaries. He, we're at enmity with God. Can't be any other way. He would be justified in wiping us all out, but does not, because that's the other side of the equation, you see. He's quite merciful. And so he took all that which was due us, and he placed it horrifically, miserably, excruciatingly on the shoulders of his own son. I wouldn't do that for you. You wouldn't do that for me. He did that for us. And then he declares it, pronounces it, uh, evidences it, and all the rest, and waits for me to say yes or no to the invitation to get on the ark, to accept Jesus as Savior. Leaves it up to me. Doesn't force me, doesn't compel me, simply invites me. And for anyone who says, yes, I'll get in the ark, we rise above the floodwaters. We're not better than any who perish by no means but we surely have a way of escape. Jesus is the way of escape. Now, that's, is that just like, it's just like eternal life insurance? No, no, no. I get to walk with him every day. I gave you a little glimpse into my personal relationship. I start almost every day with the Lord. I talk with him. Nothing else matters. I worship him. That's the first thing man did in the new world. He worshiped God. That's what my calling is. That's what yours, to attribute worth to his name. Nothing else matters. That's what I'm going to bring with me on into eternity. Everything else is subject to inflation, theft, rust, decay. What matters most, that personal relationship with the giver of life, endures throughout eternity. Sometimes when my faith wavers, I read accounts like this, Noah's situation, and I say, ah, 
You're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. As you were in those days, so you are today. No, it's not a box. And you don't require animals offered in, in sacrifice anymore. But Hebrews tells us what God does require is the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, which give praise to his name. That becomes a soothing aroma in the nostrils of Almighty God. This is not ancient history without relevance to today. God has revealed his response to humankind through the flood and through Noah, and he's the same as, as with us as he was in those days. I hope you're in the ark, so to speak. And I hope you've come to be in the atmosphere and the embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have found in him assurance of salvation in spite of feelings and personal sense of worth. I hope you found it merely by his amazing grace. So we pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you gladly, not under compulsion. Glad to bow before you, you being the most high God, high and lifted up. And we're so grateful for that vantage point. You see all things coming our way. You see the end even from the beginning. You look upon us with gentle and compassionate and very caring eyes. Oh, God of all hope, we'd be without hope but by you. Thank you for coming as deliverer. Thank you also for coming as ultimate judge of human sin. It has to be this way, for you are holy, uncompromisingly so. Thank you for crediting to our account. We don't deserve it, but you did it. The righteousness of yourself so that we are in right standing with an otherwise unapproachably holy God, who now we refer to as Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. We look forward, Lord Jesus, to seeing you face to face. We trust you for eternity and now help us to trust you daily. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks, Lord willing. We'll see you in Genesis 9 next time.